I'm Zoraida Cordova, and you're listening to the Clashing Sabers Network. Here we go again. We're home. I bypassed the compressor. You were the chosen one! Something truly special. Congratulations. You are being rescued. Revenge is not the Jedi way. I am no Jedi. The ability to speak might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. This is the Clashing Sabers podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I am here with my co-host. First, we have the man who inspired the char- character of Toro Calican. It's... Devore, that better be you. No. No. <laughs> no. No. You, sir. Is, uh, is Lindsay on the program? <laughs> Lindsay? Lindsay? No. Nope. She's going to be so mad at <laughs> Oh, hi, Drew. Hey. How are hey, you? I'm good, Brandon. How are you doing on this lovely day? I am doing great. That uh, introduction got even better of a reaction than I was expecting. So we're I, off well, to Well, first off, I had, I had to remember. It's like, I can't remember that character. Is this a positive or a negative thing he's connotating to me? It's like, I'm sure it's negative. <laughs> I'm going to roll with that. The Han Solo knockoff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was rewatching season one of Mandalorian in preparation for this episode and just happened to be watching that as I was uh, writing up notes. I was like, ah, this is perfect. Does his, ca- does his character improve over time or do you feel like he is, is lame and he's always been lame and he's always going to be lame? I think the point of him is that he's lame. Okay. So but he's like, is he like so lame he's cool? No, 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 no. Oh. Dang it. No, no. Okay. But who is cool is the man who makes the magistrate, Morgan Elsbeth quiver in her boots. It's DeVore. Hello. Tonight is going to be crazy. We are going to uh, make our way back into one of our favorite places in the Star Wars universe, and that is the Mandoverse, because, of course, season three is kicking off this week, and so we thought it would be apropos to reflect on uh, where we've been and where we're going with The Mandalorian. I've been re-watching to get hyped for it. I am um, beyond sufficiently hyped. So it's going to be a fun conversation as we kind of just look and explore what makes the show work and uh, things we want to see continue on in uh, Season 3. But before that, we've got to get to our important question, which is, Drew, what are you Mm. Star Warsing lately? Well, I was able to finish Convergence, the second major entry, I guess, in the High Republic Phase 2. I think we'll call that the second major entrance. Um, Path of Deceit was done, and I finally got around to getting Convergence from the library. So that was a fun one. Uh, I now have two books left that I need to read that I have in my hands. I need to start and finish Brotherhood. And I just picked up a copy of Shatterpoint for the very first time. Oh, you have not read Shatterpoint? I have not read Shatterpoint. Wow. I know. It's very um, good. Do you like it? Yeah. Are you one of like the three people who like it? <laughs> we have it, two apparently. of the three people then, because I friggin' that okay. book was dope. Okay. Um, maybe you can help un- unravel this riddle. I got a copy that is, is clearly a pre-Disney purchase, because it does not have the Legends banner plastered across it, and it's not one of the Essential Legends Collection Edition. But it does have a subheading that says, A Clone Wars Novel. Are there other books with a, huh. like? Is that a thing? Yeah, like there's a, a subset of books that I've never been familiar with. There is a subset of books um, with that label on them. There's some. I think 
there are some printings with them and some printings without them because really yeah so i know like the um the medstar books there's like a duology there Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure the clone series, the one with like Order 66 and everything in it, has those. There's definitely another Anakin book that I know has it that I can picture the cover and I oh, can't remember what it's called. And um, I, I think um, I had a copy. Dark Rendezvous has it for sure. Has that the label. Yoda book? The Yoda book. Um, I think the hmm. copy that I have, and I'd have to dig way into my, my box of books, but I think mine was without that on it. So I, I think maybe it's something they put on for a time and then kind of phased out to sell them more in individuals than like a series of Clone Wars novels. Oh, uh, okay. Because I, I was finally able to finish my bookshelves, and I was putting everything out, and I realized when I was putting my Legend books in like chronological order, I only have one book that's a prequel era book besides like the movie books so i have like the episode one novel i think i have i'm pretty sure i have revenge of the sith i do not have an attack of the clones book so i'm gonna have to find a cheap copy of that somewhere dude that's Um, a good book like yeah okay sure it um it adds a lot to the movie and a lot of side story you get a lot of time with shmi and uh (laughs) that it's actually You you know what attack of the clones was missing more time with Shmi. That's that is exactly what would have done it for me. You See, know? I told you, it's all it right there for done you. Done it for Shmi. <laughs> um, but the only other era, like that era book that I have, that is Outbound Flight. I don't think I have really anything else that fits that kind of Legends era novel paperback book. Besides that, I was kind of surprised. I have everything else. <laughs> Nothing. Well, okay. What are you going to qualify something like Kenobi as a prequel book since it happens before the original trilogy? No, I wouldn't call it because it's not really a prequel era. Prequel era for me is the beginning of Phantom Menace to the end of Revenge of the Sith. That's the prequel era. Post prequel, post Revenge of the Sith constitutes Rise of the Empire, and then you have the Rebellion. I don't even have a copy of Kenobi. Darth Plagueis. Uh, ooh, I don't know that I have that. Oh, man. That is a good one, and I do remember liking that. I really like, uh, if you haven't tried them out, they go with Revenge of the Sith kind of as a trilogy, the the Rise of Vader trilogy. Yeah, Uh, I've seen that, like, in the Labyrinth of Evil, I remember. Yeah, Labyrinth of Evil and Rise of the Dark Lord, I think it is, or Rise of Darth Vader, something like that. Yeah, I think it's Rise of the Dark Lord, yeah. Yeah. You might be right. Those are, I mean, I might see if I can get those for, like, a buck or two each, because... Because I, I was putting out, like, I have way too many of the hardcover of the new, like, the Disney books, and yeah. they take up so much more room. They really do. It was really fun to do. I put all my new Jedi Order books together, and the, all the spines are uniform in, like, their layout. They're all black cover with the gold text and fonts, and it looks really great. And then I look at the Disney stuff, and they're all different sizes, and the colors don't match anything when you line them up. It was a little frustrating. Yeah, I wonder how long they'll actually be able to maintain that continuity there because they don't have a track record of it. It's not great. Not even like the, the three Essential Legends collections books I have are of uniform shapes and size. That's what's really frustrating. Yeah. No, it's it's endlessly frustrating. And even within series, like they, they don't keep it consistent. So um, I've just kind of come to live in the chaos that is <laughs> the, the, the books. Um, no, I'm actually, so 
I'm caught up on um, High Republic. Uh, got Convergence done, and Lindsay and I are, are going to be talking about that uh, on the next episode. Don't burn the sacred text, which will come out soon nice. around here. But uh, so that I didn't get too far ahead in books that we're going to talk about, I took a little breather, and I'm rereading Black Spire. Dude. Oh. This is book that is... the other Zorita Cordova book? No, that's uh, Crash of Crash Fate. Crash of Fate. Yeah, yeah. That one I'm saving. Uh, I was actually talking with Mark uh, the other day. I'm saving that one. I'm going to reread it when I'm on the way to Galaxy's Edge this summer. Because <laughs> oh, it, nice. it it goes through more of the like actual uh, Black Spire outpost than, um, than Black Spire does. Black Spire has a That's few odd. locations it really focuses on, but it's more of a... Um, you know, you've got the rebel or the resistance base that they're building up, and you've got some of the mainstays that you go through. But Zoraida Cordova was telling us when when we talked with her about Crash of Fate is she actually had a map of Galaxy's Edge laid out, and she took some Funko Pops uh, to represent her characters and like moved <laughs> them along to make sure they progressed in like a fashion that you would follow if you were living there, which That's I thought was ridiculous. really cool. That's funny. Uh, so I'm gonna Devor, reread that. You, have you read Convergence yet? I don't know if we've talked. I have about not that. yet. No. Okay. Do we have a plan to do that? Yes. You're, yeah, you're that, a pretty pro- high proponent of Crash of Fate, if memory yes. serves. Okay. Yes, I am. I have yelled about it on many podcasts on many occasions. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is actually next on my docket is Convergence. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Next on my docket is uh, Jedi Survivor Battle Scars. I'm very excited about that one. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. That, that one's actually be coming out soon, right? It should be coming out soon, and it's it's a short book. Uh, I think 279 pages. That's not bad. That's yeah, that's doable. So I mean, I think most of of the Star Wars books come in somewhere between like 350 and 400. Like they're pretty usually usually pretty meaty books for the most part. And this one I have is just like. This is like a weekend read, so I'm really excited to have something <laughs> that's going to be kind of short and concise and to the point. You know, if you, I feel like if it's that short, they're not wasting any time on uh, on anything. But again, I haven't read it, so I don't know yet. But uh, we will report back on that on Don't Burn the Sacred Text. But Devor, what about you? What have you been Star Warsing lately? Well, jumping off what you uh, what you were saying, I have been Star Warsing Jedi Battle Scars, like uh, like a couple <laughs> other folks on the team. I have been making my way through that, and let me tell you something, Brandon. You are in for a treat. This book is I mean, like for me, this is top three Star Wars books. It's Whoa. really freaking good. Hmm. It's amazing. Right. It, 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 it is. It's it, it's a it's a book that you can. You can enjoy, even if you have a cursory knowledge of Fallen Order, it does not require necessarily playing the game. But if, you, if you're somebody who has played the game and you get into this, this, this book just completely elevates everything that was introduced in that game. And I mean, like that game already, you establish in a connection with these characters. But this just, Sam Max just takes it to a totally different level. The writing is amazing. The storytelling is really compelling. Yeah, this is just a home run book. Wow. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that was one thing. Amanda finished it, and I asked her, like, how well do you need to 
no, you know, Fallen Order. And she's hasn't even watched the full, like, YouTube uh, playthrough. I've watched it before. Um, I need a refresher course, but I've watched it. And she was like, no, you can follow it perfectly fine. So no, uh, no spoilers, because it's still under embargo right now. But we can say, apparently, that it is uh, the greatest thing to happen since... <laughs> Brotherhood and Shadow of the Sith and all the Correct. other great books. Yes. That yes. Exactly. <laughs> they're just hitting it mm. out of the park in the books department. They you really be are. quiet, sir. We don't need... Just... Okay. okay you're, I... you're strategic leaving out of certain titles as noted. Don't worry. <laughs> it's all Listen, right. It's cool. I'm used to it. This is my life. Listen, I said I love Shatterpoint. It's a great book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I admitted that I like... Mace a Mace Windu-focused thing. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, what's cool about that, to, to go back to that real quick, is one thing I didn't feel like we get a lot of in the canon material is Mace Windu actually dealing with his dark side that's so clearly presented in mm-hmm. the way that he... <laughs> the way that he approaches things, and, I mean, even going to his lightsaber form, you know, which is based on being able to to use anger and not let it consume you and stuff, and... That this book, or that book rather, is an exploration of that. Like, that mm. whole thing is an exploration of where is the line before we go too far, and how do we find that, and what do we have to do to find that? Um, what brings us to that point? So, it's a really good book in that form. And I feel like if you were going to write a Mace Windu book, you know that's what you do because you get to spend more time in his head and i think it's matthew stover who wrote it yes it is. Yeah. sounds right yeah. so he yeah. did revenge of the sith too and his prose is just absolutely ridiculous like it's not even fair um, <laughs> how good he is so good stuff happening there and good stuff happening uh coming up this week guys because we've got more mandalorian coming out season three is starting and uh so we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk all things Mandalorian season one and two and just kind of look back on what worked what didn't uh what we hope to continue forward and what season three might bring so come back right after this our people are scattered like stars in the galaxy what are we what do we stand for not just learning about how to fight. You also have to know how to navigate the galaxy. That way, you'll never be lost. Forgiven for my transgressions. May the force be with you! This is the way. There's something dangerous happening out there. And by the time it becomes big enough for you to act, it'll be too late. This is the way. 
Welcome back, everybody, and we are ready to get Mando-versed. We're going to talk Mandalorian, and of course, we have season three coming out this week. Uh, it will premiere on Wednesday of this week, and so this is going to be a discussion about what we expect to see. So maybe you're listening to this beforehand, get a little bit of a primer. Maybe you're listening to this afterwards to laugh at all the things that we got wrong about what might happen in season three. But either way, welcome it's going to be a fun conversation. And gentlemen, I want to start with season one, because obviously it's where all of the things started. But it's been a while since we've really focused on season one of Mandalorian, both, you know, individually on the podcast, but also as a fandom as a whole. You know, we had so much going on in season two, so many great uh appearances and cameos and new side characters and bringing back of legacy characters, all of these things. But when you go all the way back to season one, Drew, for you, what is it that worked that made this show just click? Well, I think what made it work for me the most was the the scale of the story that they were telling was a lot smaller than a lot of other Star Wars things. Like, this wasn't a story about, you know, the classic tale of good versus evil trying to save the galaxy or condemn it. You know, it was a man trying to do his thing, and he gets roped into this adventure, and it ends up being a story about how he really has to work to find uh, a family, and, and he has to find a place to belong. You know, he's looking for a home, and what do those things cost him? And I kind of like that focus. It allowed for a different set of tools to be used by the storytellers. And, and so changing up the stakes made things feel very different. And it felt like you didn't really know what was going to happen because we don't have kind of like a, any kind of pre-written end note. It's not like Mando shows up in the prequel movies. And so therefore we know he's going to make it through each and every adventure completely unharmed since we know how it ends. But we didn't have any of that to guide our concerns and our fears about what might happen to these characters that we got to know. That was, I think, what made the season one... St- and, you know, I mean, it's hard to go wrong when you have Werner Herzog show up for just about anything. Um, I was re-watching the trailers. The, they, like, the very first trailer that they released for the show, almost all of the narration is Werner Herzog's lines, mm-hmm. and I'm not entirely sure we knew he was in the show at that point. Like, he might have been announced as a cast member, but, like, the fact that they got him to record lines, like, we all thought, like, um, th- the most famous line out of that was probably, bounty hunting is a complicated profession, don't you agree? And we were like, oh, this is going to be so cool. Yeah. And he's in it. Turns out he's in the show for, like, what, maybe four minutes total, <laughs> if you add it all together. But still, I mean, absolutely priceless. His character adds so much gravitas to the situation, like... He really makes you feel the stakes of what's going on. You know, you talked about it's a smaller scale and stuff. And a lot of times, and and this is not necessarily a bad thing, but a lot of times smaller stories just feel smaller scale. Like, don't feel as impactful. You're not as invested in it as you would be when the whole galaxy's on the line. And he helps to add that to it like there's there's a mystery to him and i love like the naming convention where they just use like the client (laughs) like yeah there's it's ridiculous but uh it adds a lot of mystery to him and and getting somebody with you know his 
capacity as a uh, creator, as an actor, and as someone who understands stories and the impact of it uh, just adds so much. And I mean, just even thinking about the fact that he was like, no, don't CGI Baby Yoda. Like, you yeah. use the puppet. <laughs> and in retrospect, it's like, yeah, you absolutely use the puppet. Why would you not use the puppet? 100%. Uh, so, yeah, that adds a lot to it. I, I think that, for me, the scale being smaller actually helped it become more relatable because... In our day-to-day lives, we are not, I would, I would venture to say, we are not all well-equipped to understand and relate to a galactic-wide struggle. Like, we can relate to common everyday things that we've all experienced. We could even understand things on a city, state, or maybe a national level to say this is a challenge for the entire nation or even the world. But beyond that, it's so far outside the realm of what most of us are used to and can, can relate to that the larger in scale a story gets, the harder it becomes, at least for me, to grab on and really go along for a ride with the characters. When it starts small, um, when it starts at kind of just a basic human interaction level, it at least eases us into it. Like Again, if we watch the first trailer, the idea that they're presenting is that this is a story about life uh, as the Empire has fallen apart and really no new government has come in yet to establish the same kind of dominance. So in a lawless world, what does it look like for people whose lives are built around order and tradition? And that, I think, is something we can, we can relate to a whole lot easier than, you know, you, you, you fly your X-Wing to this part and you travel down the thermal exhaust port trench line and then, you know, it's two meters wide and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's definitely more relatable. And something I realized on my rewatch is just how much they put character development first before yeah. really getting into the meat of what the show was going to be about. Like you have yeah, episodes, the characters are the story. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like episodes one and two, you know, obviously sets up, you know, who the Mandalorians are at this time, Din Djarin and his character, Grogu and his character. Like, you have those basic tenets you need of, like, this is who the show is about. But then you spend the next, like, four or five episodes not dealing with any of that, really. Like, it's all these Mm -hmm. side stories, which, in retrospect, knowing what we were going to get later is even more powerful now. Because it's like, God, you we really care about these characters and know about them. And the big stakes are really in, in episodes seven and eight. You know, that's where we get a whole bunch of the history and the actual villain. Like, we don't get the villain until, like, seven episodes into the series. Because it does take so much time to work on those characters. And it just gives you a slow burn that a lot of stuff nowadays doesn't have and doesn't do. And I think, you know, obviously having a Star Wars creator like Dave Filoni, who knows the universe so well, and a creator who has just seen such great success as John Favreau at the head of this allowed for this kind of product to be made because you can just trust people like that and the people they're going to bring in they brought in some amazing people to that you can trust them that okay we know what hooks people we know what's going to get them invested in and this might not look like everything else you're seeing on TV today. Uh, it might not look like everything you're seeing in the movies where it starts with a whole bunch of action and continues on, but it's going to be worth the ride and people are going to be invested in. They absolutely hit on that. 
Devor, what do you have to say about season one? Yeah, I mean, I said a couple of things. Actually, first off, to go off a point that, Drew, you were making about the kind of scale of the storytelling and the way that that kind of makes it relatable, I think probably one of my favorite examples of that in that first season in particular is, um, I'm blanking on the name of the episode, but it's the one where he's in Omera's village. What's that one? What's that one called? I think that's called the Sanctuary. The is sanctuary that the AT- is yeah. that the ATST? Episode? Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. it's it's that episode, and that's the point, which is like that the yeah. the big bad of the episode is one ATST, <laughs> like a thing hell, that we had seen too. Yeah, like a thing that we had seen, you know, either multiple versions of or getting you know pancaked by Ewoks in Return of the Jedi or anything like that. This. And then all of a sudden it's like the scale just goes down and it's like, what? But then it's made into this terror. You get the, you know, the the Jurassic Park homage of the giant footprint of it. <laughs> and like that's an example of exactly what you're talking about, which is that scale. You shrink it down to that micro level. And then all of a sudden like you're seeing how something like that, that we saw that you would think when you look at the kind of birds have you're like oh it's just one atsd well when you're literally on the ground floor like one atsd is kind of a big freaking deal right and it's so hard like because you play any star wars video game and you as a single character are going to have to destroy one of those dumb things yes and you'll do it over and over and over again to the point where it becomes rote and it's just a, a combination of buttons but when you get to that scene and that i was thinking of that that exact same sequence because it terrifies them. It because one tiny blast and they're gone, and that's it. Yeah, and you really feel the weight of like the character's mortality in that episode because you know the lethal destructive power that the thing has, and you know that these guys can really do nothing to prevent that. So they have to figure out a new way in which to take them out. It's really interesting how they have they took something that was a joke in Return of the Jedi it was comical yeah. and and made it really really threatening yeah i think that was done really well so yeah i was second that point you're talking about scale i think the other thing that really worked for me in this in the first season is really at the very beginning which is the real 180 bait and switch fake out that we get about what this show is going to be because everything that we had gotten up to that point, and it's there in the promotional material, and it was there in the, in the initial kind of talking about what the show is going to be. You know, there was, of course, the whole story about, you know, John Favreau wanted to do a Boba Fett show, and then he couldn't get Boba Fett, so then he had to invent this other character. And, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, to everything that you were talked about before, Drew, at the start of your comments about, like, we thought, you know, an episode about a show about what the galaxy is like after the Empire when this government has fallen apart and there's this vacuum. And the impression that we all got is, okay, this is going to be this, you know, lone gunman, like man with no name. It's going to be this mm-hmm. guy going in these shootouts and, you know, like kicking ass and taking names. It's going to be that kind of show. And then you get to the end of that first episode. And they just go, no, 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 no. It's not like, this is not going to go the way you think. It's Lone Wolf and Cub instead. Exactly. <laughs> Which at the time, you know, was the sort of fresh thing. Like now we've gotten like... Uh, several iterations to the point like t- to the point where at, you know there was a point in the middle of, like in the middle of last year where I was like is this the only star- story that Star Wars knows how to tell right now but at the time <laughs> you know at the time the Din Grogu relation that was like wow like we didn't see anything quite like that at least in a while at least in the current canon and so yeah the way that they are just able to so radically shift 
what the story is and then take it in a different direction where mm-hmm. you could have done something that was much more, you know, one dimensional of here's badass Mandalorian doing these badass things. But then you take it in a different direction. You take and you take the guy who starts at that point. He's the guy who walks in the cantinas, I can bring you in warm or I can bring you in oh, cold. So good. It's so good. But then you bring in this other character and then all of a sudden him having to go on this journey and you know, bond with this with this other character and the way that that changes him and the way that that shows layers to him, I think really works very well. And yeah, as, again, to kind of second something else you're saying, Drew, about that, that relatability where, you know, I've made this comparison, I think a lot of other people have too, is like there is for, for Din all throughout the Mandalorian, there is a kind of, um, there is a kind of Forrest Gump quality to him. Like he's just this <laughs> schmuck who's like bumbling his way through the most important events of the galaxy. And he's just trying to get through it all. And so, yeah, like in that way, you can sort of relate to him because he's not force sensitive. He's not the son of Darth Vader. Right, he's right. not like, he's whatever. He's not the chosen one. He's not exactly. subject to prophecy. He's, you know, he's Luke in A New Hope. He's not Anakin in, in, in any of his films. Yes. Yeah. He's just like a guy trying to do a job. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> he's just trying he's trying to, to take care of this clock, kid. You know? <laughs> yes. Exactly. He's like he's yeah. He's just trying to keep this kid alive. And what a gutsy move to make Grogu a thing at all. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like no one had young Mini Yoda on their bingo card no. for that episode. Like, and I think a lo- collectively, everyone watching going, Nah, they're not really gonna. Is it, but, but really? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> and we're going to stick with it. It's going to be a thing. And it really does flip a lot of what we know, you know, on its head and a little out the window because now we don't know where he comes from. Then there's implications in the second season that there's cloning issues going on. It's very, very interesting stuff that, again, like you were saying, Devor, pre, you know, in times pre Mandalorian being released, I don't think we have anything that crazy be that concrete and make such an impact in the world at large, really. It changed pop culture. Like, it's yes. one of those pivotal yes. moments in pop culture uh, that are, is going to be looked back at, you know, on the the VH1 and MTV, like, this is the 2020s or whatever it is. It's going to be that <laughs> going on. Wow. Uh, okay. So, but no, like, I, I mean, it even... You know, Amanda, she became a fan from The Mandalorian. Like, she hadn't seen Star Wars before The Mandalorian. It brought in a whole wave of new people. It's just absolutely crazy. And I want to go back to that that kind of plot twist that you were talking about, Devor, because I think it's really important to keep in mind that they didn't do the, the bait and switch as a means of, like, tricking us yeah. so much as we're going to actually get you more invested because yes. he's not who you think. It wasn't, yeah. we're subverting yes. your expectations to subvert your expectations and haha, you thought you were getting a badass Boba Fett show and now you're getting, you know, a lone wolf and cub. And it, it wasn't like that. It was about, mm-hmm. no, this is going to have the gravitas because it's not just the audience who believes that's who Mando is. It's Mando who believes that's who he is. And it's not until he meets Grogu that he starts to break through that shell. Like, I think even when we look at the arc of the season, at the beginning of the season, before Grogu, before he really cared about somebody, I don't think he would have even let IG-11, I mean, he wouldn't have let IG-11 take his helmet off anyways, but 
you know, he wouldn't have let something like non-living take off his helmet regardless. Like he was so stuck in the creed and this is what Mandalorians are and this is what a bounty hunter is, which is really to speak to the larger fandom, kind of what everybody thought, you know, like this is what a Mandalorian show should be about. It should be about fighting and war and, you know, violence and all of this stuff. And then by breaking down that idea through breaking down the character, you get to some really powerful emotional things because it makes the audience vulnerable in the same way that Din is vulnerable. Devor, I'm gonna let you start on this one. How did your your views on the show evolve as we moved into season two and through it? I think one of the things that I really like that the second season did was it really kind of broadened the scope and I think introduced some new themes into it. So, you know, it, it, the Mandalorian, like in classic Star Wars tradition, the title has or has come to occupy multiple meanings where it had in the initially just the kind of singular meaning of the Mandalorian, a.k.a. Din Djarin, this one guy. Once we go into the second season, the Mandalorian starts to take on this kind of larger communal thing. And what, what I like about the second season is that it becomes much more this story about belonging and identity and like who's in who's out like what does it mean to be a mandalorian because he, he's meeting all these characters along the way that are sort of changing and challenging the way he sort of thinks about both his own identity and then his kind of larger you know culture and tribe you know you get first it's Cobb vanth who's who's wearing the mandalorian armor and when he first meets him din is ready to take him out but then you know they fight alongside each other Din still walks away with Boba's armor. He doesn't let him keep it, but he does sort of recognize Cobb Vanth as a kind of honorable man. So you get that. Then you get, you know, fast forward a couple episodes, you get Bo-Katan and he runs into them and he sees these man, <laughs> these, these folks who are Mandalorians, but then who are not abiding by his culture and customs. And that requires him to have this chance. I mean, you know, the great moment where he's, you know, they all take off their helmets and he's like, you take yeah. off your helmets. Like you're not a true Mandalorian book. And it's like, buddy, <laughs> you know who I am? <laughs> I like how she's like, oh, you're one of them. It's so good. It's so good. They're like, God, like no like not one of them so like and that challenges him and then you go you fast forward even more and then you get to the kind of re reintroduction of boba fett where din, din gets to that point in the story he's then willing to actually give the armor back to boba fett even though this is somebody who is of course not abiding by the mandalorian sort of customs and creeds and way of life doesn't really even clearly identify as a mandalorian himself but by virtue of showing off this lineage and like here's my dad and he was a foundling and all of this then he's like okay yeah you know what you get to have this armor so you see him changing his whole definition and idea and you see the like all of these different kind of factions within Mandalorian culture and they all have different kind of ideas about you know who they are what does it mean to be a Mandalorian like like who who's in who's out you know where's that line like I always think about 
you know, another moment. It's in the, is it the season finale? Yeah, I think it might be. Where Din and Boba show up in the cantina where Bo, when, where Bo and Casca and all of them are. And they walk in and she looks and is like, not every Mandalorian's a bounty hunter. <laughs> like, And that's like, okay. there's a little thing here about like stereotyping and like people are just getting, you know, put in these categories. Like, so there's all those little conversations in there about identity that I think are just really compelling. And I think season two kind of elevates the kind of thematic stakes of the show in that way. Well, and even in the episode uh, with Bill Burr's character, with Miggs Mayfield, like the whole crux of that is in terms of, you know, Mando and his arc is he takes off his armor and he puts on a different armor and Miggs says, says to him, you know, is it you, you can't take off your helmet or you can't show your face? Like your, your morals and your creed gets kind of messy when it's not convenient anymore. Like he really challenges him and, forces him to kind of consider like what really is important in this creed like is it is my faith performative or does it actually have a purpose which i think is something that you know we all kind of have to face whether we are people of faith or just people trying to live a good life of like what what does that look like? Does what does it mean to actually put these things that I believe? Because we all have a, a you know core set of beliefs about what life is and its meaning and all of those things. Like that's part of humanity. But how how do I express that? Is it about the things that I do, or is it about the way that I do them? And having that character bring that out of Mandal- Mandalorian and the Mando in particular just was absolutely mind blowing and. The season, you know, you mentioned so many great characters that came in and added to his story. And I think that's kind of the most important thing. You brought in characters like Boba Fett, Bo-Katan, Luke freaking Skywalker. Like, you brought in all these huge names and huge characters. And it didn't for a second take away from Din and Grogu's journey. Like, you brought in Ahsoka. You brought in all of these characters. And they didn't, they actually were there to serve their story, you know, their story as a a clan of two, uh, which if you had just on paper gone, all right, we're going to continue with these characters that nobody knew until like a year ago. And we're going to bring in some of the biggest names in Star Wars, particularly for like hardcore fans. And we're going to still make it about these two. Nobody would have believed you. And the execution, the writing, like everything down to the cinematography, the music, it just absolutely hit on all cylinders so that when we get to that final scene with Din and Grogu and he actually, you know, does take off his helmet, you have Luke Skywalker right there. Like something nobody thought would happen and that's still the most important and most impactful moment in that episode. It's just the level that you have to execute on to make something like that work I think is so high and so profound that it honestly is kind of mind boggling. Drew, where do you stand on season two? Like what, what worked for you and how did it kind of evolve your view of what Mandalorian was going to be about? Okay. Bear with me. I am of two minds. Ooh. Okay. I love it. It's a lot of fun. Every episode is great. The story is great. It does the good things it did from season one, even better. I'm not wild about all of the legacy characters 
being added to the mix because, Devore, like you were saying, it does indeed broaden out the scope of the story and we're approaching, you know, epic levels of good versus evil again. And so if one of the things I loved about the story at the beginning was its laser focus on this small group of brand new story characters to tell, we're now adding to that and bloating it out a little bit. It's not bad in season two, but as we continue this trend in the next entry, um, it's not great in the next thing we're going to talk about. And I'm afraid of certain implications for things going forward that we are going to lose a lot of the individual story around Din and Grogu pretty quickly. Uh, we could pocket that concern about season three for a moment, but I mean, I, I do love the way Brandon, like you were saying about how his personal identity is challenged by each of these new additional characters that come in and each one adds a different layer and a different question that he has to wrestle with. It's almost like somebody else in this channel wrote a 3000 word essay on it when the day that episode came out. Um, but it does set a little bit of a scary precedence where it feels like they had a lot of fun adding things in and it, it just seems like it worked in spite of that. Like, I like all the things that they added in and bringing all those characters to tell the different stories is good, but it felt like so much setup work. I mean, like, you think about the one Ahsoka episode in there is there to... She doesn't take Grogu on, which is part of the goal that Din is on. So he gets to this one checkpoint and it fails him. So he has to look somewhere else. So what is that episode doing for that season, if not reintroducing the character to a live action audience in order to establish further appearances down on the road? That's not a... a we could have been more economical about that. It's, again, not a bad episode. It's a lot of fun and it works. But if we, we take it in context of the larger picture, it's a detour. And then the story detours right back to where it was going before. No, I think that's a valid point. Like, it definitely does. I mean, it's kind of hard because we live in this world where we know, like, all these things that are coming down the road. And because we're kind of smart to the industry, we can see you know sometimes it's glaringly obvious when things are that when they are promotions mm -hmm. for something else um i wonder if we would have the same feelings if we lived in a world without like so much interconnectedness and so much knowledge of what goes on behind the scenes it would be interesting to see that but uh, no perhaps I but like if you think about like we knew we didn't know anything about what rangers of the new republic was intended to be but we had an idea that it was going to be based off this one character which no longer exists but the, the idea of that story, which I think we have confirmed now, I'm not entirely concrete, you guys can correct me, was based on the popularity of the character, new material was developed for that. As opposed to, we've already got this character and story in existence, let's weasel it into what we're working on. Like, it's a cart and horse kind of issue to me. Again, it, not 100%, because I don't know how much of that we have actually confirmed, but... I mean, it's just those little things. Again, the Cobb Vanth one worked really well because mm. of the way he, the character would be continued to use. I waffle on the Bo-Katan character a bit just because I don't know how much that character's introduction pushed the story forward for Din and Grogu. Like, it challenges his identity, and I get that, and I like that, and it's really good. 
So it's definitely good for like the, when we when the when the two characters first meet and have those conversations to say, "Oh, you're one of them," and he's like, "What do you mean, one of them? Who's a them?" And you know, you can see kind of his eyes opening up a little bit to the galaxy around him. But I just you know, all of season three looks, or at least the first two episodes, because it seems how these trailers work out. The, the a bit of Mandalorian season three is going to be about her and Din and the whole culture, which again is not a bad thing, but it's going to be very easy to lose the things that made these characters interesting to begin with. Rewatching season one, I was really stunned by how tight they kept the story and how intimate it was. Like you kind of you do forget that in season two because it gets back into you know a bigger galactic kind of thing but Mm -hmm. i do think having bo katan in there is essential because that is kind of the pivotal moment where he starts to see that a mandalorian can be something other than just what he was raised to believe you know you even have the the moment of bo katan reaching down to lift mando out of the water being like exactly the same shot as the Death Watch trooper lifting the young Dinjarin out of of the um, pit oh, that his parents yeah, yeah yeah the bunker uh, it, like it's exactly the same he's in water it's like a rebirth like I think you don't get the moments later in the season where he takes off his helmet or at least they're not as impactful and believable if you don't have that Bo-Katan moment because you have somebody here who by if you look on paper is more mandalorian than him and she takes off her helmet and it's kind of like you know a kid seeing a different kind of faith and going but maybe that takes what i like about and and believe in about what we do over here but points it in a direction that makes more sense for the world that we live in today yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because, you know, we were talking about both Bo-Katan and Ahsoka and their introduction, you know, what are they doing in the story? I think they're actually, do, I think Bo-Katan and Ahsoka are doing similar things for Din and Grogu, respectively, which is that they're both, for both of these characters, sort of catalysts for expanding their sort of horizons of, like, where they can go as individuals or as people. It's kind of going back to that sort of Star Wars theme of of choice and destiny, you know, of sort of destiny versus choice or, like, fate versus choice, where you've got for Bo-Katan on the one hand, you know, Din has, you know, is, is walking around you know, through the story up to this point with this kind of very narrow understanding of what it means to be a Mandalorian and what counts and what doesn't. And then he meets someone like Bo-Katan and that starts kind of chipping away at that and then it starts sort of expanding the way that he's sort of thinking about that particular identity. And then similarly in the case of Grogu and Ahsoka, Grogu is on this sort of journey where like, you know, Din has been put on by, by the armor saying like, well, like he's got to be returned to his own kind, AKA the Jedi. And like, he's got to go on this path of like getting back to being, you know, trained in this particular way. And it's the introduction of Ahsoka who started introducing this idea of, well, does he? It's Ahsoka starting to think like, well, maybe this isn't the path or, and then this kind of gets expanded upon a little bit in the, you know, in the Book of Boba Fett episode about this notion about, of choice and so on, where Din attempts to interject himself in the training of Grogu and she's the one who's prodding him like, are, like, are you doing the best for him or the best for yourself? So there's interesting that element of, well, 
just like just because Grogu exhibits his force sensitivity, must he there? But bef- like, is the only narrow option for him to be Jedi. So there is this idea of both of these characters are kind of prying open for these characters what they could possibly be in this galaxy. Well, and I think too, Ahsoka being a former Jedi who left the Order, and it's not just that Grogu you know, has force abilities, because we've seen that before, but he actually was a Jedi. He was in the Jedi Order proper before, you know, Order 66 and the fall of the Order. So it's not just, hey, you have these abilities, you know, this is the path we've normally seen characters take, and maybe you're not going to go that path. It's he was going that path, and maybe we're going a different direction, which is similar for Din. We've seen Mandalorians be these badasses who are great at combat and, uh, you know, are essentially, you know, warriors who are focused only on fighting. And now he's heading in a different direction. Um, And how do we take what we have from our past and use that to build our future? Because even the worst of paths uh, of pasts are going to have positive aspects of them. And I think for both, Grogu and Din, there's a lot of positives in their background. They learned a lot of valuable lessons. Uh, you know, like even even though Din is in a cult, like the cult taught him about loyalty. It taught him about honor and respect and things like that. And those are things that he takes forward. He aims them in different directions. Like it's it's kind of what I have said that I love about Aiden Versio so much is she has all the right morals at the beginning. She's just pointing them in the wrong direction when she's with the empire and when those morals are challenged versus what she's actually asked to do she learns that she needs to point those in a new direction and it's not that she becomes this wildly new person she's the same character she's just changed her focus in the direction that she's facing she's not changing you know like luke changes essentially his entire personality which he needs to like he goes from whiny farm boy to galactic Mm -hmm. hero like he goes from somebody with no confidence to somebody with you know walking into Jabba the Hutt's you know palace just a complete gangster like it's it's very different when you have a character that has these foundational elements that you're like yes this is what I want my heroes to have from the get-go and then those things kind of get exposed through their interactions with other characters and I think that's kind of the reason that all those characters were brought in is to expose the different facets of the, the kind of holes in the cheese for Din and Grogu and their history and how that led to where they're at today. But so, okay, Devor, you brought up Book of Boba Fett. So let's mm-hmm. let's talk about that <laughs> because let's talk about that because uh, it's amazing. No, it is amazing. <laughs> It, here, here's the thing. I feel like I'm one of, again, the only seven people on the planet who enjoyed that show. No, I love that show. I had a great time with that show. Okay, um, good. Like, it is in my the lower levels of my, uh, you know, Star Wars shows, but that's just more comment on how freaking good everything else is that's than anything point. to do with Book of Boba Fett. So, but it does feel kind of weird to just pause and go back to watching two episodes of The Mandalorian before going back to the Book of Boba Fett. I hate this analysis of it, but I understand why it persists. Okay, explain yourself then. 
Book of Boba Fett is Mandalorian season one with different characters. It's the exact same thing. It's the same predicated storyline beats, and that's okay. Man reinvents himself and has to try and find a new way to survive and, and discovers a new family and a new home worth protecting. You could put Din Djarin's, uh against that, or you could put Boba Fett against it. It describes both of them equally, and it's a similar journey. And the idea is it demonstrates how the two of them handle it differently and how they handle it the same. But that doesn't mean that you stop and tell a completely different story in the middle of the season. Well, are you talking about like the episodes five and six or whatever? Yeah, yeah. That's a different problem. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. This is a problem that I was talking about earlier of establishing other things related to mm-hmm. your material because there's one of like four different options <laughs> that the that the inclusion of Mando's little coda, you know, could the coda to season two in the middle of the Book of Boba Fett. And I don't know of a cleaner way to do it, honestly. Maybe they should have tacked it on at the end of season two. I'm not really sure how you do it because because it introduces the concept that in the middle of a season of a story, we can take a quick digression out and we can change where we are in the timeline and tell a different story and then wind the two stories together. That's one option. They could use that going forward and it could become a new path in storytelling where they're allowed to flash back or forward or across in, in on a timeline in order to tell multiple stories at the same time. That would be cool too. They might never do it again. Like it's the first person shot from the Phantom Menace where you see through C-3PO's eyes for the first and only time <laughs> in the entire freaking saga. And it's like, why is that there? And it's literally because George Lucas was like, I don't know, we're going to try something new today. Like, I, and I don't know how it's going to be used and how that's going to feel going forward. It did feel very jarring, but honestly, how else... Like. Did they need, does the story need to have those two characters come back at the end of the Book of Boba Fett to help fight the Pike Syndicate? I don't know. I feel like that's a, we could have done something a little differently there, but I wonder if they had to just include those characters because they were like, all right, we're going to use this as a segue into season three. And season three has got to answer the question, what happened to Grogu? It's not like he's not going to be in it. So it was almost like the finale of season two put them in such an awkward position. They didn't want to let too much time go by before they could answer the question. So they shot the gun too early and it just happened to land in the third act of Boba Fett's story. And it just got consumed by it, which is not fair because his story was so interesting and so exciting, no matter what Lindsay thinks about that show. I I hear your point about you know, not wanting to wait too long. But if you take those two episodes, take out just the parts with with Boba Fett and put them at the beginning of season three, you've got a, to me, what would be a fine lead into the season that they're going to tell. It's it wouldn't have been bad. Heck, it would have been good if they had just left it as like like a full length feature film and just put it on Disney Plus in between, you know, Boba, yeah. Boba Fett and Mando yeah. three. Yeah, like they could have called it like the interludes or something. <laughs> like, they, I mean, they've said like, "Oh, it's you know, Mandalorian season two point five. Well, no, don't, don't. That's do, not this is, fair. I don't exactly. Like that. This bad. is not. This is not Lion King two and a half. Like, we're not doing that. Okay. <laughs> uh, it really, it's jarring in 
a way that is detrimental to the book of Boba Fett, to be totally honest, because yes. immediately the conversation changes and you don't like, I feel like you had some solid investment in book of Boba Fett prior to Mando showing up. And then you get to episodes five and six and you get Mandalorian, you get Grogu, you get them reuniting, you get Luke Skywalker training yeah. Grogu, Luke and Ahsoka. The show you get the N1 being returned and restored. Yes. Like you never had a chance of that show coming back to being about Boba Fett after that. No. no. And it's not fair to that show. And honestly, and it, it, look, we're going to get season three and maybe they have some unforeseen way that they're going to weave it together in complete mastery that we just don't know of yet but as it stands and by all measurables that we have right now it doesn't look like it's going to be much more than dang we kind of like you said shot the gun too soon there and we could have had instead of i don't know how many uh, episodes we're getting but i think most of the seasons have been eight okay, now we're getting 10 episodes of Mandalorian. Are people going to be upset about the most popular show on TV getting two more episodes in the season? I'm yeah. pretty sure they're going to be okay about it. And you, yes, you want the these interconnected universes and stuff, and I think you can do that. I think in Book of Boba Fett, you can bring Mandalorian in to help with that final battle. I think that's fine. You just have to do it in a way that it's still Boba Fett's story. You can still bring in Pelimato, and you can show that these universes or these galaxies and these stories are connected without having to completely use your hot characters as a crutch. Yeah, and this is what, kind of like the danger of relying on some of those existing legacy characters mm -hmm. to come back and try and make your show more exciting because that, that, that kind of uncovers an obvious deficiency in the story. Because if you needed to have those characters come back in order to bring the attention back, that means you lost the attention to begin with. Yeah. So there's mm -hmm. an issue. There's some kind of issue with the... Like maybe... It shouldn't have been a show that long. It shouldn't have been seven episodes. It could have been four to five. And maybe they could have used... If, if they could have put the entirety of the story in a slightly more condensed manner, um, you know, like a movie or two, then perhaps it would have been a little bit more cohesive and without kind of the interruptions. Now, having said that, using Cobb Vanth and Cad Bane is pretty dang brilliant. And I yeah. can't really put my finger on why those work for me, but not. And maybe it's just the 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 volume of those characters being used, like just just the sheer minutes on screen that they have. It, it, it's got a pale in comparison to how much you know Mando's on screen in the Book of Boba Fett show because he's in it for three episodes out of seven, whereas you know Cad Bane shows up at the end of one episode and then is in like the last two. A bit more and more but it was nice to have him kind of like really interact with the story and really play a vital role in what was going on because it, it, it created that tension it put the internal conflicts into an external situation so you could kind of like okay here's the bad guy and here's what he represents and here's all the stuff that boba fett's been dealing with and it's going to manifest itself in the inside this character and it, i love that kind of thing and, and it's not nearly as distracting as, oh, hey, look, we're going to go spend time with Mando watching Grogu meditate with Luke while Mando is chatting with Ahsoka. And isn't it great we have all these characters back together? Yeah, I, I think it's exactly what you're getting at, Drew, which is that I, I think the reason that 
the Cobb Vanth and Cad Bane usage work better is because they are weaved in with that sort of ostensible A plot. In whereas even though you know Din becomes evolved in that A plot in terms of you know he goes to help Boba and he's fighting him you know f- fight the Pikes and so on. So much of the rest of the story is this kind is on this parallel track where it's happening next to it or off to the side where literally the the reunion with Grogu literally happens off to the side of the battle. It's like the battle's yeah. happening over there and then over here the reunion happens. And then never the twain shall meet. It's never it's not like Boba and Grogu actually meet at the end. They just peace out. So yeah, I think it's exactly that what you're touching on, which is that the, the, like Cad Bane is there, but he's always sort of part of that A plot, and he's always kind of like it's always going through Boba Fett and ditto with Cobb Vanth. Whereas so, whereas a big chunk of the the Din stuff feels like, well, here's Boba's story, and then over here's the Din story. Yeah, but well, it it reminds me of wrestling because in wrestling, <laughs> I'm going somewhere. Go with this. on, hold on. Yes. In wrestling, you have you you always have like your top superstar. You know, you have your Hulk Hogan's, your Stone Cold Steve Austin's, The Rock's. The, these people <laughs> that transcend. Your Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan. And th- that works. Having a lead guy like that works to be your champion, to be like your main draw and everything. But when you don't develop the characters around them, eventually that character gets stale, and the audience turns on them. And it or they leave and then you don't have any developed stars that you spent time putting story behind to pick up the mantle after they're gone and you have to do just continue to bring them back for cameos and cameos to get ratings to keep your show on the air that's my fear with too much mando and putting him in all of these stories is let's develop these other characters and i think Right now they're doing that. Right now they're developing, you know, Cobb Vanth. They're developing, uh, you know, Grief Karga. All of these other characters for us to care about too. But if it becomes a crutch to where we don't develop the other stars around him, then you just have one guy that's just like carrying the whole business on his back. And that never works in the long run. You have mm. to have the side characters around it. Hulk Hogan isn't as big if you don't have big names like Macho Man, Randy Savage, and the Ultimate Warrior and stuff going on around him. You know, like, you have to have these other big, important characters around the outside. It's like in sports. I know you guys are big sports ball fans. Mm -hmm. If you only have one team that's winning it all the time, people lose interest pretty quickly. They want to see the competition and the players making each other better through that push and pull it's a story in and of itself and that's kind of what we need in this mando verse that we're having it's not just hey we're all hunky dory and together but are these creators being pushed to push the envelope to grow these new characters to go in new directions to not force you know a luke skywalker and even ahsoka into everything because we know that's going to get ratings and clicks and that's going to you know draw business but are we thinking in the long run where we've got to have these characters these side characters that also matter too because it it's it's in the dna of star wars like yes the original trilogy comes down to luke and darth vader but it's not as good if you don't have leia and han and 3po and r2 and chewie and you know 
Biggs and Wedge and all of these other characters. <laughs> you see how I threw Wedge and Tilly's in there I for you? I appreciate that. I was really yeah. curious how far you were going to go down that list. Yeah. So, like, and so that and I Tyree that the, and Dutch and Pops. <laughs> uh, Porkins. Baron Sunterfell. Rest in peace, Porkins. Um, but yeah, you have to have those other characters to go with them or eventually people are going to get disinterested and they're going to turn it off. And then this great thing that we had going is going to get lost. And again, I don't think that they are risking that happening right now. But if that if the insertion of Mandalorian into all of these shows becomes the norm rather than mm, this is the exception in Book of oh, Boba man. Fett, then we've got a serious problem on our hands. Yeah, because you just got to imagine that the Ahsoka show will suddenly take a derailment at some point and you'll have an episode or two where Mando comes back in for some reason, which now that I say that out loud, not a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and again, it, it can, can be work. done. Yeah, yes. it can yeah. be done. Yes, but you can't overplay. Your, like, you've got to know <laughs> yeah. when to you got to know when to hold your cards. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, how many times can they really strike lightning this like season 1 really good, very high marks, well received all around. Season 2 even more so. Like how long can we like historically at a certain number of seasons a show begins to show its age, right? The paint starts coming off. And it's usually between seasons three and four, I think, is where you can start to see noticeable turns. Now, we're in a different era of television production in general, where a lot of things are different. So it may or it may not occur, but I think we're going to be ultra sensitive to those kinds of things in the next year or two. I kind of hope Mandalorian only goes four seasons. Like, they've said season three is not the last season, so I hope it only goes four seasons. Not because I don't want more of it, but I think that that... Well, really, did you, did you see the quote from John Favreau just the, a couple days ago, where he was um, basically saying, "There's no real endpoint in sight, and we can keep doing these for years." I saw the headline. I didn't click on the article to actually yeah, it's, read what it's he said. Not a terribly out of context quote either. Where he's talking about where they can keep doing these shows for years and years, and there's no like they didn't have an endpoint in mind. Now that may just be bluster, because it sure seems like they're pointing to something. Yeah. A very particular blue-skinned individual, but we'll see. No, yeah, that is something I kind of wonder about because they did say, like, there's a culmination event of all of these shows, you know, kind of coming together, and now all of a sudden there's not. And the landscape has changed and, and things, obviously, but I feel like the only thing that's not happening that would have been a part of that is the Rangers of the New Republic show. So it's like, what the hell happened in that show that was so essential that we can't like I know. do this. But uh, so we, we're moving to season three and we're, we're getting now to, you know, talk about the title of the Mandalorian. We went from it being a small, like this is the Mandalorian to kind of what is a Mandalorian. And now it's like a capital T, the Mandalorian. <laughs> like, who's going to be the Mandalorian? Now it's why is the Mandalorian? Yeah. <laughs> now it's what is the Mandalorian? Uh, so, Devore, as we move into season three, what kind of themes and ideas that have been present in the prior two seasons are you hoping they continue forward as we go? 
I mean, I do think that, and I, and I think, you know, we've already gotten a sense a little bit of this in the preview material, but I think continuing this this journey of, you know, Mando thinking about and evolving his own identity and then Mandalorian identities. I mean, you know, we've already gotten those snippet from the trailer by like, I have to go to Mandalore to what it like purge my sins. That's not the phrase, but like something like it's sort of that idea. Yeah, tone. Like, yeah, atone. Yeah, uh, like atone for his sins. So you see him there, like he he's in this kind of complicated position where his his horizons have expanded, but he's still feeling that pull. Like in a lot of ways, you know, we saw him, of course, reunited with Grogu at the end of Boba Fett, but he's still, in some ways, despite you know getting back his son, he's still in a very vulnerable position in the sense of like he's been kicked out by the only other two people he considered family. I guess <laughs> if you want to call the armor and Pre Vizsla, <laughs> the, the man Mom, with the smoothest Dad, brain in the co- in the where convent. Where I go? Yeah, so he's still in this very kind of unstable spot, and so th- there is that sense where, you know, from that line where he's trying to make his way back into the good graces of his former cultists. But, you know. Oh, wow. You got to call him. F- <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> and. See, here's the problem. In my yeah. brain, it's all a religious allegory. It's all mm-hmm. kind of, you know, a one-to-one for individuals' religious experiences as they grow up in this fundamentalism. And then they are, they are ex- exposed to different, um, d- to different denominations within the same general umbrella of the overarching religion. And now you're like, their fellow cultists, like, okay, listen, a little close to home, buddy, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but I, I, think- get, I get it. You're I think that's wrong. an important conversation to have, though. You know, like when you, if you're going to have something like this that is so set on these, this character who has a has a core set of beliefs that are getting challenged, you have to ask the question of when is it faith and when is it you know a cult? Like I think that's an important question to have because right. well, yeah, because the problem is when when like the, the, the sins of an individual is against your parents versus like the actual religion itself, like against his own convictions and whatnot. And clearly, the conviction in season two was, "I will give everything for this child." Right? Right. I will yeah. sacrifice any of my own personal boundaries and lines. And and you know I, that's that's uh, we're not going to talk about judgment, judging that or whatnot. But but clearly, it does not line up with what mom and dad's rules were at the house. So yeah. therefore, he's you know. At a certain point, and I would wonder if this is, we're going to see him a more determined individual, like a more clearly focused and goal-driven, you know, goal-oriented Din Djarin, where he knows what he wants. He knows how to, you know, not, not necessarily how to complete it, but he's got like a step one. I, this is my goal, and I'm going to work towards that. And I think it's going to be like a refinement of his investment in the, quote, religion, because now he has tested it against fire and he has worn away the things that don't matter and only that core gold standard is going to remain for his pillar of faith and it's going to be whatever it takes to save this child and so if he's going to go fix it he's going to go build a home for his family now that's what i would imagine season three kicks off with we'll come back in like four or five six weeks and figure out how wrong we all are drew did you read master and apprentice Yes, okay. I read that is that is a book that I read. So there's a line in there. I don't know if you remember, but basically I do not. <laughs> <laughs> I do because it's become very important to my my Star Wars fandom where Qui-Gon essentially says if our code tells us one thing and the needs of the people 
in front of us tells us another is there any like question of which we should choose and he's saying you know our beliefs are one thing but they are just a thing the need of the people in front of us is an actual need it's actual humanity it actually is flesh and blood and it matters and it's something that we can do and i think season two kind of started din on this journey but i'm really hoping season three is an exploration of that idea for him because i think that's what makes to me what makes the difference between being cult-like and being a faith in a religion is faiths and religions are based on making yourself better and making the lives of the people around you better like you can look at the majority of of modern faiths and that's what they are about when they're actually doing what their texts say that they're supposed to be doing now when they're twisted and manipulated to fit the needs of uh, or the wants of certain sects of people, and it becomes about we have to follow this to the letter, we've seen that that creates a lot of dangerous uh, aspects that we face in our society today. And so I kind of, Star Wars always speaks to, you know, life overall, but also speaks a lot to our time. And I think Andor mm-hmm. showed that we can speak a lot to our time without bashing people over the head with it, you know, in a way that turns them off because people are, oh, I don't want to watch entertainment and, you know, actually have to think about the way I'm living my life. Uh, mm-hmm. So I kind of hope that that is an idea that gets explored more, whether it's explicitly explored or it's in the subtext. So, Drew, for you... What is what's kind of the the themes and ideas? Not necessarily the the storylines in particular, but what what themes are you wanting to see continue into season three? Oh man, it's going to be hard to say. Um, but you know, the, the biggest ones are always identity and family, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, all good pieces of art and entertainment speak to identity, right? Everything is about the human condition. Um, you just have to look for it. But that's usually one of the key indicators of good art is that there's something about the human condition. So it's probably going to be like, what is the cost of my particular religion or the way in which I practice it and the way it affects others and whatnot? I mean, I I can imagine at a certain point he's going to take off all his armor and lay down all his weapons and try and put put it behind him. Um, It'll be interesting to see how he kind of balances out the responsibilities he has to his family at the same time upholding a creed that is based solely on the ability to kill the other person standing in front of you. So I think that's kind of what I'd be interested to see if that actually comes up and we get to deal with that. Do you, you guys ever read the book or see the movie Silence? Martin Scorsese directed? No. No? Okay. Kind of like, okay, so it's a, it's a, it's a tale that talks about, you know, um, Practitioners of faith are often eager and easily, not easily, eager and willing to sacrifice themselves for their beliefs. But how far does that sacrifice stretch? Are you willing to sacrifice others for your own personal belief? And it has to deal a lot with questions like that. So I feel like that's kind of the natural progression tends me to think that's what's coming next. Because first there was, you know, investment in my personal identity. Um, What does that identity cost me? And now it's going to be what impact does my identity have on others? Yeah. Yeah. Especially because now, you know, I mean, this thing that we were not talking about, which is that Din in season three will be potentially adding this new identity of claiming this heritage in Mandalorian tradition of wielder of the Darksaber equals ruler of Mandalore. He's got to deal with that, too. Yeah, clearly he can't just give it away to somebody. Yeah, in addition to the kind of pre-existing, you know, identity crises that he's having in terms of, like, 
who am I? What is my relationship to this group that I had been a part of, but now I've been kicked out of? And then there's other Mandalorians, but they don't really live the way that I do. Now he's the inheritor to this tradition. And I mean, at least, you know, where we left him both at the end of season two and then, you know, Book of Boba Fett didn't really express all in detail. Like, we don't have a sense yet of like where his mindset is around that. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, we get a little bit of, you know, him interacting with the armor and like, you know, getting a little bit of the Darksaber lore and then the Night of a Thousand Tears. So we get like some of those elements. We see him training with the sword, but we still haven't really seen the way like, what does the sword mean to him personally? Is he attaching the same thing? Is he willing, ready, able to take on this mantle that he kind of, in, in Forrest Gump fashion, kind of accidentally inherited. Yeah. Well, and I, I think there's a conversation to be had there, and this is something I hope they explore about leadership and whether leadership is something that is thrust upon us or it's something that we get to choose, which obviously it depends on the situation is the answer to that, but kind of that balance of, you know, when does the choice of becoming a leader kind of count? get taken away from us and we get forced into that position, whether we're good at it or not for whatever the circumstances may be, or do we see this as an opportunity and take it to make the world around us better and, and stuff like that. Um, that's something that I hope that they explore more because this, the dark saber, you know, symbolizes that for Mandalore. And also I, I speaking of Mandalore want to see kind of, the Mandalorians dealing with this shared trauma. I think that's something mm -hmm. that is really fascinating to go with the aspect of, you know, speaking to our modern lives because, you know, in past, past few years, we've all shared a trauma of going through this pandemic and, uh, you know, economic recessions and, and all of these things that, you know, the majority of us have in one way or another had to struggle with um, as a, a society, but also as individuals, which is the same for the Mandalorians. You know, you had the Night of a Thousand Tears, and it clearly, you know, the Mandalorians were already kind of in sex before, but it really split them apart, This, you know, when they had to yeah. go oh, on the God. run and <laughs> hide in these converts. And so how do you reconcile when an entire culture it has become so fractured where at the end of the day, I think most of the Mandalorians believe the same thing about what Mandalorian should be, but they all, because of the way that we all interpret trauma and, and handle trauma differently, are going to have different views on how we get to that point of healing, which I think is something that our society is dealing with right now. Yeah, and I mean, already in the show so far, we have seen at least one of the responses to that, which is the children of the Watch themselves. We have seen mm -hmm. on, from there, we get the apocalypticism, right? Like the, the framing from the armor of the Night of a Thousand Years, like this is what happened. We lost our way. We abandoned our tradition. And this was the wrath that was meted down upon us mm -hmm. because we, we strayed away and we were not faithful. So there's one response. And that is, again, speaking to the real world thing, something that you do see in societies or, you know, countries or cultures that experience sort of mass trauma is you do sometimes get this, these kind of like apocalyptic movements of like, 
we need to, you know, we need to recommit, we need to cleanse, we need to purify ourselves. This is, you know, you go to, and, you know, one of the, you know, the, the more prominent examples that come up the top of my head, you know, the Black Death in Europe, you get the emergence of the flagellants, these kind of radical Catholics who are, you know, whipping themselves in, in the streets saying like, in doing this, they will get penance from God because the plague is happening because, mm-hmm. you know, we have strayed away from God and this is our way to try to get back in his graces. And so you see that response. And now the question will be in, in season three. Once you start pulling in Bo and potentially, you know, we've seen in the trailers, other Mandalorians, what is, what is their take on it? How are they responding? How are they interpreting what happened? That's something else I'm really excited about, too, is just, you know, yes, getting to see that, but just getting to see more Mandalorians. And I hope it's not a situation where they're all just a bunch of no names and we're only focused on Din and uh, Bo-Katan and probably Sabine at some point going back to Drew's setting up other shows oh, thing. Oh man, I hadn't even thought of that until uh, now. Hey, you watch your tone there, young man. Um, but Paz Vizsla Paz- coming 2024. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Armorer coming 2025. Story. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I hope we really do, you know, because we got you know, a couple Mandalorians besides uh, Bo-Katan and Din in season two, but they were really just relegated to to side characters. Uh, They got no character development, which there wasn't really time for it in that season and the story that they were telling, and that's fine. But if you're going to do a season about the Mandalorians, like, do it. Give us real character development with Mandalorians and not just a whole bunch of really cool looking helmets that, you know, and, and great fight scenes. Like this is something I think whether we realized it or not, like star Wars fans have wanted to see since, you know, clone war showed us, you know, a bunch of Mandalorians on the screen at the same time. It's like, this is essentially a dream come true. Um, but is it going to be something that falls flat because it's not again, developing those side characters to give us more reason to invest in the story or are we looking at our watch when all these characters are on the screen only caring about the scenes when Din and Bo-Katan and Ahsoka and Luke are on the screen we'll have to see we'll have to see so time will tell guys any final thoughts on what might be coming on season in season three of The Mandalorian I think we'll see Boba Fett starship return and it probably will explode Okay, we're giving hot takes. All right. I mean, they blew up the Razor Crest, so why not? Oh, that was that was so just traumatic. That was just rude. I Speaking laughed. of shared trauma, it was very funny. Tavor laughed. I laugh. I laugh every time I've seen it. I laugh. <laughs> what a comical shot? Like the way they framed the shot. It's just like, oh yeah, and your ship's dead too. Bang. It's exactly, it's, it's the whole framing, which is, you know, all the, they defeat all the Imperials. Everybody goes away. They're just standing. There's that wide shot. And then there's just the one laser just comes and slams. And then, you know, with Din, like he steps forward. And of course it's like really good mask acting aware. Like you can't obviously see the facial expression, but you see the facial expression, just the horror. Yeah. You know, he's just like my car. Oh man! Now I'm gonna have to rewatch that and see. I've never laughed at that 
a particular scene. Uh, I think once you know that it's coming, it looks a little bit more comical. Because eh. you know what's going to happen. You're like, oh, this ship's not going to survive. So then, then it looks a bit more like they were just kind of like, oh, yeah, and your dog, too. Bang. I was really hit by, like, how much the Razor Crest goes through before that. Like, they were really foreshadowing they this really, thing is yeah. going to be destroyed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That poor yeah. ship. Oh. You guys remember the little uh, Mon Calamari in the sweater who's just like, this oh, thing again. Can yeah. <laughs> and then what he, like, ties it together with fishing net. Oh, yeah. my God. It's so good. It's yeah, so we good. Skip over, we skip over, like, episodes two and three for some reasons, but they're probably some of the most important ones, like the fish lady. We forgot mm-hmm. about that storyline entirely. Oh, I have not forgotten about Frog Lady. Don't you worry. Oh, Frog Lady. Sorry, I didn't mean to miss species. There is actually a Frog Lady in season one. Really? Oh, yeah. In, yeah. In one of the cantinas, One of the cantinas, right? yep. It goes, it's oh, just really? like oh, no. a cantina shot. And I. it is... They probably use the exact same costume. Like, it could be the exact the same, same character. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's supposed to be the same character, but it definitely could be the same character. Hey, which, if they can reuse the Greedo outfit four times in A New yes. Hope, they can do it for this thing. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. If, it wouldn't it, be the first time we've repurposed a thing, like, ever. <laughs> we reused the Cantina things to be the IG-88 droids. Like, I mean, we've got Attack all of them. of the Clones reuses the same footage in the battle between Obi-Wan <laughs> and Jango <laughs> yeah. Fett. Yeah. That's so, great. Oh, good times. Oh, it's great. Yeah, we're stretching the definition of the word great now, too. Okay, cool. <laughs> go read Attack of the Clones, the novelization. I, as soon as you go back and reread Ronin. Well, anyways, guys, um, uh, next time on Things That Are Never Going to Happen, um, Drew. Brandon, Bern- what do you think is going to happen in, in season three? What's your hot take? Uh, call your shot now, and DeFore will come to you next. Since mine oh. is clearly the death of Slave One. I... My hot take, oh man. Bo-Katan dies. Oh. <sighs> Ouch. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Devor, don't let Meg listen to this. <laughs> I don't not, want it to not happen. That she would. <laughs> she You're blatantly fine. said she's never listened to any of the episodes when we had her on, so it's fine. You could, you could hear my heart hit the floor when she said that. <laughs> like, don't right, meet your right. heroes, kids. Humility <laughs> check for the day. Uh, no, I think in, there's a lot of different ways that they can make that happen that is <gasps> impactful. <gasps> the armorer kills her. Oh, God. That is not one of the ways I was thinking of. But uh, now you're going to think about it. And I, it makes sense, right? Mm. They're going to fight over that same little, like, you know, Halo-style space bridge. And she's just going to, like, this is Sparta her right off the edge of it. <laughs> No, uh, he, okay, here's here's Slow how it goes motion down. motion kick. Here's how it goes down. Bo takes off the armorer's helmet. Yes! And the armorer acts in revenge and kills Bo-Katan, and that is what finally breaks Din no. of the fascination with this uh, Death Watch, mm. Children of the Watch. Interesting, yeah. interesting. That's my shot, calling it to a T. So, okay, got it, got it. All right, Devor, hot take. Devor. Ready, go. Oh, hot take. Um, uh, let me. Um, we're gonna get a Roger Roger out of one of the B ones in that droid bar. Oh, good lord! <laughs> Aim higher. 
I'm not going to lie. I thought he was going to just mess with us and be like, we're going to get Roger Rabbit in. (laughs) I really didn't know what was coming after he said Roger. I was like, oh, no. Here we go. Oh, man. All right. Well, we... uh, Sure. Why not? (laughs) On brand as always. (laughs) We will have to wait and see what happens in season three. And, of course, you can come back here and uh, hear us laugh about how wrong we are all were. And somehow DeVore ended up being right. I don't know. It I could mean, go most anyway. likely, right? If you're going to put money on one of them. Yeah, yeah. Roger, Roger is usually a good bet. Um <laughs> Uh, but no guys we will be covering all of that here on the classic savers network between all of our shows including sith talk forever star wars uh larger view of the force of course here on clashing sabers uh we are going to be talking about mandalorian all throughout the season in various different formats so make sure you are subscribed to be able to get all of those into your uh feed all in one place wherever you're listening to this podcast now and uh if you like what we do here please share it send it to other people say hey listen to these weirdos uh talking about mandalorian and their crazy hot takes Uh, And give us a rating and review so other weirdos like us can find us and laugh at our hot takes as well. Drew, if uh, people want to yell at you about the (laughs) destruction of Boba Fett's uh, ship, uh, where can they do that? They can find me on Twitter at TheDrewBrett. It's the best place to do it. And Devor, if people want to send you a Roger Roger or hear more about (laughs) droids' rights, uh, tell them where they can find that. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at a larger view pod, and you can find the show both on its own feed and also here in the Clashing Sabers feed. Guys, I just had an idea. No, oh, no. Yeah. I have a new hot take. All right. Okay. What if in season three of Mandalorian? Oh, no. Everybody's like waiting there's like a standoff kind of like in solo where it's like a, a western like and then all of a sudden you like <laughs> my sound seen effects a western before <laughs> yeah i couldn't think of the tune go with it no i'm gonna let you just hang out on the ledge by yourself appreciate it it's nice out here i like space <laughs> and then we just hear batch eight hi ho hi ho <laughs> do 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 <laughs> Yeah, I was like, what is that, him gaining a level in World of Warcraft? <laughs> yeah. It's a me, a Mario. <laughs> you just said a mushroom, and it's not quite so big. <laughs> Chris Pratt comes out of nowhere all of a sudden. Oh, man. You're ridiculous. Yeah, I know. All Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of the Clashing Sabers Network and ClashingSabers.net. All licensed sounds and images are the property of their respective copyright holders and are used for informational and educational purposes only. For more information on our nonprofit or to nominate a teacher, go to ClashingSabers.net. For questions or inquiries, please email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. You're just going to walk away?